Good evening, this is Ernie Gagax. If you love basic D&D, as I do, spend some time enjoying the Saber Dive podcast. Check it out. You pass through the door. You find a small room filled with gold and jewels. And a red dragon, he starts to breathe. Welcome, everybody, to Shaver Die 129. This is DM Mike, a very ancient gamer, and your host, the main host. And I've been gaming D&D for 973 years, well before Gary was even born. I'm that good a DM. And with me is DM Liz, who's also been gaming that long, but somehow still only looks 23. How you do that? Secret. Uh, I think she takes life levels from people. By giving them cookies and brownies. I don't know what you're talking about. Seriously, I think she's got a painting in the attic. That's my bet. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and that guy talking there is a horrible killer robot sent from the far future back to now to kill stuff. I don't know what. I don't kill, remember. Kill all humans. Oh, is that it? Is that it? Well, okay. Anyway, and this episode, we're talking about a retro clone. Yes, we're back to Attack of the Clones. This one is The Hero's Journey by James Spawn of Barrel Rider Games. Yeah! But first... What did we do with David this week? Who cares? So, what have we been doing in gaming this week, Jim? Oh, I, for a second. Sorry, I got all confused. I was waiting for emails. Um, I just <laughs> yeah, got... That, that was the fake out. So, yeah. Uh, I just got back from uh, Gamehole Con. It, as we record this, it's it's the following weekend, and I uh, had a great time running Mutant Crawl Classics, and uh, anybody who's thought about going to Gamehole Con and can't, I go to all three of the big OSR conventions, and... Uh, they're all well run, and I love them all, but there is no better run. There can only be one king, and it's Alex Kamer and Gamehole Con. It's the best organized, best run OSR convention out there. That's my opinion. Yeah. Well, we'll probably never make it to Gamehole Con because we're obligated the weekend before to Rose City Comic Con, and Tyler and George has dibs, I'm afraid, so... Still, we are going to be at GaryCon this year. Yeah! I mean, we haven't bought our badges yet, but we bought plane tickets and a hotel room. So we'll be there. Whether they let us into the con <laughs> or not, we'll be there. You're going to love it. They're all special in their own in their own ways. And GaryCon, I don't. It's like going to a game convention in Mecca. 
I mean, this year it's in the old Playboy Club, not just Lee Geneva, but where they had Gen Con 10 and 11, I think. Yeah, I've warned Frank Mincer that I, I kind of expect him or Jim Ward to give us a kind of a tour and let us know what weird stuff happened where at the con. So I will, uh, schedules allowing, promise to uh, get Tim to lend me his car, and I can take you to Gary's memorial plaque in the park so you can rub, do a deep Sweet. rub. All right. Somebody, I take a snow shovel, but yeah. <laughs> depending on the year. But somebody did that for me, so I'll do it for you. Well, cool. Yay. So that's your time. Uh, well, as I mentioned, Liz and I were at Rose City Comic Con a couple of weekends ago. It was good. It was fun. Not as many people as the tier before, but we weren't rained out either, so that was positive. We sold out of Victorious Rule Books. Yeah, awesome. we actually had product this time. And I had to sign every single one of them, which was kind of weird. <laughs> and, uh, I ran a couple of games, so it was really fun. Got some hang time with Jim Ward, speaking of. Yeah, yeah, he made it. Fortunately, we were afraid he wasn't going to, but he made it. We bought his module. He bought uh, one of the anthology Capes and Clockwork 2 books we had on sale with my short story in it. And generally had a good time. As far as tabletop gaming, we're still gaming with Chase. even though, And he's at least running us in Greyhawks, so we're slowly but surely OSRing him. <laughs> that is when we're not playing Gamma World and playing through Famine and Fargo. Spoiler alert, everybody. <laughs> Last session, we managed to find the meteorite and brought it back to the Colonel Sanders computer. So he gave us lots World. of freeze-dried chicken, and we thus saved our village. But we're probably going to get sick of chicken really quick. But you know, so we're heroes, and Liz's character got to keep the chicken suit. That that was my main goal. Do I get to keep the chicken suit? That's right. Have to show your dominance. <laughs> chicken queen. All right. Well, that's pretty much our stuff. If something else happened, I can't remember it, so probably best. <laughs> um, so I guess we'll go into... Get down, get down. Get down, get down. The Save or Die email. Hot Tub Time Machine. Come here, you scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week I hope that it's from a female. Oh, man! Emails. There. Haha. <laughs> now I'm back or, with the plan. Okay, email anyway, because we're going to do one of Kojo's voicemails, too, but... Want to do the voicemail or email first, Liz? Uh, let's do the voicemail first. Kind of mix it up a little. Okay. Hello, Sodmeisters. Or is it Meister Sodders? I can never remember. Anyways, it's DM Kojo. Hey, I'm calling with a question about NPC classes from Dragon Magazine. Uh, the NPC classes that were in Dragon Magazine seem to be, to my recollection mostly for first edition AD&D, and so things like the Archer class and the, uh, you know, the uh, Anti-Paladin and some of these were statted out for, for that, that rule set. However, um, if you're going to use any of those NPC classes for 
a classic D&D game, regardless of which rule set you're talking about, I'd be curious to hear what kind of changes or tweaks you would make to do that, and also which of the NPC classes you might actually utilize in classic D&D as potential player character classes. So I'll hang up and listen. Thanks. Bye. Okay, why don't you pick that up to begin with, Liz? <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I picked on Jim last time, so... Ah, uh-huh. your turn. Well, you know, I'm I'm not... I'm honestly not sure if I would really use any of the Dragon Magazine classes. I mean, I mean there probably were some gems in there, but... I tend to remember the kind of meh ones or the ones like the Uri where I'm reading and going, oh, hell no. You know? <laughs> um, it's like, so yeah, it's like my first gut reaction is, no, I'm not accepting any magazine classes. Um, but no. yeah, I, mean, I, I can't honestly remember having read one that I thought, oh, this is awesome. It, it just seems like there'd be way too much work to make them into something I would like. When I was a teenager and we were playing, I was running first edition, I loathed the Dragon Magazine classes because one person in particular, we'll call him Todd, <laughs> was notorious for hunting those up and insisting on playing them, especially Archer Rangers. But he would try any and all of them. And they were such a pain in the ass. They were so clunky and specific and sometimes really overpowered that I kind of developed a phobia against them. Um, I did kind of like the Encantrix, but I've never met anyone who wanted to play one. Ever. Hmm. Well, it was kind of weird. I mean, I don't know. Maybe the Encantatrix, you know, I just kind of, it left me cold because, you know, as a girl playing in the hobby, reading the character, it was almost like, here's a magic user variant just for you girls. <laughs> it's like, what? I can't play a regular magic user? Why do I have to have this? And. Don't forget the I witch classes. Yeah, the witch classes, too. (laughs) Encantatrix was one of those where it seemed like you could actually start to do some pretty decent stuff in higher levels, but the, you know, a a low-level Encantatrix was like, why would I want to do this instead of a normal wizard or a normal magic user? Um, So, I mean, I wasn't terribly impressed with Encantatrix either, the way it was statted out, although... I guess the idea was an interesting one. What about you, Jim? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm with you guys. 90% of them were terrible and clunky because they weren't play-tested. They were, they, they were just obviously some homebrew guy who could write and, you know, met the journalistic standards of putting the words together. The uh, I will uh, point out to uh, DM Kojo that uh, prior to AD&D being released, all of them were written for, you know, original Dungeons & Dragons, and and I bring that up yeah. because the two we did use back in the day were the Alchemist and the Witch. Sorry, we were young and stupid, Liz. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of I, I like I the Alchemist, but wasn't that uh, Strategic Review, or was I, that Dragon? 
it may have been one of those others. Because yeah, I like that. I like the Bard. It was originally done in strategic review better than any of the later ones. We played it from a Xerox copy from my first DM, so I didn't know it came from strategic review ah. at the time. Um, and the the one exception to the whole thing was that one anti-paladin uh, cl- NPC class, and my brother oh, yeah. ran, ran that, and those guys were fun to come across as players. Yeah. But they, they were literally, MP- I used them as NPCs, but but yeah, I really liked them. Yeah, I wouldn't, they would probably wouldn't require any modification. And the and the other thing that uh, he talked about, or that he asked us, you know, should player characters ever be allowed? Absolutely, emphatically, no. Play players always want to do that. It's just part of trying to power game the system. Suck it up and play the classes as written. I'm not even a big fan of some of the other classes that got bolted on to second edition AD and D. Okay, well, I hope that answers your question. Unfortunately, we really <laughs> maybe not the way you much. wanted. <laughs> oh, yeah, did, did I get too aggressive with that answer? <laughs> Sorry. No, I just, I, I, it's one of these. I feel a little bad because he's asking for our advice, and we're like, we wouldn't do it. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> not very helpful. But thanks for calling in. Ah, quick, get us an email. Yes, <laughs> we need an email <laughs> stat. <laughs> Okay, well, our email for today is from Mick Zimmerman, and Mick writes, Hey, Save or Die peeps, I love the podcast. So much nostalgic goodness. I cut my teeth on the Holmes box set (laughs) with that badass red dragon on the cover, my all-time favorite piece of RPG artwork. It was 1978, and my mom, who took the bus into Seattle for work every day, brought the game home one night and told my big brother and me that all the college kids are playing this. Apparently, she overheard them talking about it on the bus. All of the SOD DMs are about my age. I was born late 67. God bless you, sir. (laughs) Nah, Liz is 23, so that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Jim and I have a very similar taste in gaming as well, but I identify with pretty much all of you and our shared passion for the classics. My question for the sod DMs today is this. Is there an old school game system clone out there that is basically first or second edition AD&D, but with an ascending armor class and where initiative is done with a D10? For whatever reason, negative numbers scare the piss out of people in the 21st century. But I digress. I know what Dungeon Master Jim is probably thinking. Why not just homebrew this dude? (laughs) I could, but I don't have the discretionary time, and I would like to be able to entice players with a D20 system that has a rule book out there already. Also, I fear coming off like GM Scott from the movie Zero Charisma and scaring away good players with my own system. (laughs) To me, own system translates into a lot of players' minds as nutjob DM nowadays. I very much appreciate your thoughts on this. Thanks for reading this. Keep rolling them bones. Best, Dungeon Master Mick Z. Thanks, Mick. Well, funny you should ask about that, because we're talking about a retro clone today. It does not have D10 initiative, but the combat system, you could import a D10 and it wouldn't matter. Uh, It may tick off many of the rest of your boxes, though, Mick, so... Mm. 
keep listening, and you can decide for yourself after we are done with this. Yeah, I don't remember what die Labyrinth Lord with Advanced Edition Companion uses. It may use a D10. So if Hero's Journey doesn't get you, get you, you know, the game you're looking for, you might try them out as an alternative. But I think you'll like it. I actually had a little list of three suggestions, and uh, Hero's Journey was my number two. Uh, for exactly what you're asking for, Mick, uh, Osric just about hits the bullseye because Osric is a modern written uh, interpretation. That they're they're yeah, but go- they don't have a sending armor class, do they? N- no. Ah. Okay. I, well, see, to me, that's just add or subtract nine. But anyway. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. Well, like he said. And he's right. You know, sometimes for some reason nowadays you mention descending armor class. And oh, it's so hard! It's so hard! It's not hard. But what he was describing there, Osric, is almost exactly it because they set the goal to design uh, a version of AD and D that would have been Gary Gygax's intended second edition AD and D before he left the company. So it's very close to first edition AD and D with a lot of support products. Um, we're going to review a really good game tonight that also does that. And um, I can't help it, you know, Dungeon Crawl Classics does not, <laughs> as particularly the magic system, does not directly directly emulate AD&D in game mechanics. But what it does bring to the table is that same, um, with fully, D, fully modern D20 rules, brings that same mystery back where you're not, okay, it's a red dragon, it's going to breathe fire, it looks like it's an adult, hold my beer, I got this. That doesn't work in DCC. You're <laughs> like, holy crap, it's a dragon, everybody scatter. <laughs> okay, well, hope that helps, Mick. And if other people wanted to ask questions that we probably don't know the answers to, um, where would they write us? Liz? You would write us at saverdiepodcast.com. No, gmail.com. Yeah, that thing. Sure. <laughs> Taco. Yeah. <laughs> so, or, yes, saverdiepodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> or call us at 940-536-3763. Well, let's head into our incredibly important com- commercial break. And then when we come back... We'll go into top five. Stay tuned for Land of the Lost, following Dungeons and Dragons. Open your mind to new Dungeons and Dragons computer game from Mattel Electronics. It will lead your imagination down a dungeon labyrinth, wherein lies the dragon's treasure. Steal his treasure, but make no false moves. For in Dungeons and Dragons, a dead end is a dead end. New Dungeons and Dragons from Mattel Electronics. Welcome to Glowburn, a podcast dedicated to the mutant crawl classics roleplay game. Podcast.glowburn.org. Pacific Standard Time, Mora detected a long-range nuclear missile launch in North Korea. 
exists mm-hmm. i have it what? in my hand so it must exist yeah and he was kind enough to send each of us a hard copy <laughs> yeah hear that that's solid mm-hmm. hard cover there yeah it's oh yeah so size though right or a little bigger yeah. yeah it's pretty much digest size but it's a hard cover and very nicely put together is it a lulu I'm, or uh yeah i believe it does print through lulu um okay we can, yeah, we'll uh, available uh, through, uh, I want to say drive through RPG. It's the other one. Available through RPG now as a pay-what-you-want PDF. It doesn't get yeah. better than that. And then about 40 bucks for this really beautiful hardcover copy through Lulu.com. Okay. Yeah. And if you, if you want to know why it is $40, it is full-color interior. So you've got a, it's, you have a full-color hardback cover and all of the interior pages, you know, have some kind of color on them. And so that's that's where the cost goes. And it's a beautiful book. And we should probably be waiting until the end of the episode yes. to talk about I was stuff. About to, <laughs> I was just about to say, let's leave format and uh, the interior stuff for products of your imagination. Yeah, he- your first impressions as a game. Heads up. I actually read your show notes this time, Mike. And none of my top five, if anything to do with format, layout, or price point <laughs> okay so first impressions jim oh it's the best as a game <laughs> it's really really interesting I, you know i read a lot of uh retro clones but if uh swords and wizardry is a better written and presented od and d white box then i in my opinion the hero's journey is a better written and presented mensa red box D D. Right down to having its own Larry Elmore art inside. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and that's obviously well, no bang on Redbox D&D, because that's great, too. I think this is a little nicer put together. Well, my first impressions upon reading it is basically somebody took white box rules, i.e. OD&D, and re- basically created first edition AD&D without a lot of the crunchy, fiddly bits. That was my first impression. I think that's a fair thing to say. Um, I mean, there's a, a lot of things, you know, my first impression of the game, looking through it, um, you know, some bits and pieces that, you know, seem to take their, you know, tip of the hat to first edition AD&D, but it is not first edition AD&D. Um, but you get some of the feel of it's like a lot of people when they do retro clones of you know their versions of Holmes and take it past third level you know you can either go the OD&D route with it or you can go the first edition AD&D route with it and this it this feels like you 
you took some of the AD&D stuff, but you didn't, like you say, you didn't take all the crunchy bits of it. Yeah, and uh, he also played with a few rules in there, but we'll get through on the top fives. And I will start with the attributes. He has eight attributes rather than six. It's the standard ones you remember, except instead of wisdom, he's got willpower. But it seems to basically work as wisdom. And the two attributes he added are appearance and luck. Luck is kind of has its own little apply system, but I'll talk about that at a later time. Um, appearance is basically what you would think, and it's part of the 1E feelness I got of it because it feels like comeliness hmm. from an Arcana. Um, whereas luck, depending on your score on that, it basically helps you make a roll for something nifty to happen, depending on how high a luck you've got and what the, the referee decides. So all that was kind of an interesting and attributes uh, go from minus two to plus two. And you have to have fairly high stats to even get the plus one or plus two. So that's interesting. I, I'm not sure how I feel about the willpower wisdom. I suspect I'm just being groggy. Because it's like, mm -hmm. so it's called willpower, not wisdom. So what? It's being used more or less the same. And arguably willpower is a more effective description of what it's actually used for. I think you just so, answered your own question. Yeah, yeah, so... But I still... It leaves me a little uncomfortable, and I think it just... Eh, show me wisdom. Anyway, <laughs> so that's my top five. What's yours, Liz? That's all of your top five? <laughs> no, that's <laughs> number five. Okay. <laughs> it's like, wow, we're done. Um, <laughs> no, I'm done. I'll leave you guys. You can finish oh, up. <laughs> oh, okay. Alrighty. Um... Well, let's see. I guess I will start off with one of the things that really struck me as the feel of the game that you want to have is he talks about, I believe it's on like page 104, heroic characters. And the text you know, specifically says, the player characters are the active forces for good in the world. And the core themes of the game, you know, that he talks about, you know, this is what this is what playing the hero's journey should feel like. This is what your campaign should feel like. And it's all about being a force for good, becoming a hero, you know, becoming a part of the legendary tales of the world that you are adventuring in. No and, yeah, you know, basically, you are not expected to be playing evil characters. Um, <laughs> don't be I a murder hobo. <laughs> right, don't be a murder hobo, Or if you please. do, just the evil things. Yeah, um, but it talks about, you know, the heroic characters, about wonder. You know, magic is not just a resource to be expended. Magic items are not bought and sold in shops. They are not easily crafted. Here, here. You know, this, this is the kind of this is the kind of game world that you know Mike and I tend to prefer. And this is obviously what 
you know, Spawn is wanting to have happen in the hero's journey. So, you know, talking about, it's on Chapter 7, running the game, and talking about the themes, I love all of the themes. You know, this is just... I can't say enough good things about this. I would adore playing a session or an entire campaign of the hero's journey with the themes that are supposed to be just the hallmarks of this game system. Okay. Jim? My uh, number five is the best presentation of the three-point alignment system I think I've ever read. Um, It's your normal three-point alignment system of law, neutrality, and chaos, except that it's written in in a way that brings... Some a reality check to alignments in a fantasy role-playing game, i.e., the only people who are long chaos are those who are devoted devotees of that cause. So a paladin is going to be lawful, mm-hmm. a cleric is going to be one or the other, but the vast majority of PCs and everyone else in the world are all neutral. I really, okay. yeah. really like the way he presented it, that as a three-point alignment system. Yeah, this is a three-point alignment system that I would not grouse about. <gasps> Wow! Awesome. I I would play this three point alignment system and not get pissy about it at all. Wow! It's a bold statement. I'm shocked. (laughs) Well, it's not just saying you must be lawful, and if you're lawful, you are good. You must be chaotic, and if you are chaotic, you are evil. When you're dealing with sentient creatures, it actually makes more sense because you are choosing a devotion Mm -hmm. to your to your chosen path, you know? It's not just, okay, it's a straitjacket. And and this okay. is just like a, a little nugget of genius buried in the middle of the rules. It's one paragraph, but there are lots of things like that in this rule system, where you're just reading along, expecting the same old, same old, and you hit one of these, and you go, wow. Somebody okay. really thought about it. Okay. How well, about your number two? My number four, four sorry. is going... I forgot if we two. were ascending or descending for a second there. <laughs> Descending! Five. Three, sir. (laughs) Four is the professions. They are set up like secondary skills, Mm -hmm. but you are actually given suggestions on how that would possibly apply in gameplay. And your profession is going to have an impact on what you start the game with. Both your gold total and some free goodies. Since, obviously, if you are a hunter or you are a forester, you get some small traps or something, you know, along with it. And maybe if you're a tailor, you get a cloak and a decent suit of clothing, etc., etc. And I really like that. I like how he weaves those in without wrecking the class system. Yeah, I liked that, too. I remember reading over the professions part and thinking, you know, this is almost tailor-made for Mike right here. Yeah. And it's it varies by race, so mm-hmm. you don't end up with elven lumberjacks, <laughs> <laughs> and th- which is really cool. I was about to say, and on a side note, his halflings are are, da- are hobbits. Damn it! He <laughs> makes no bones about it in the descriptions, the way they're described, and the way they behave. Eh, no little gypsy character types here. Oh no, these are these are hobbits. But anyway. Well, the cover, the cover art is a homage to uh, Lord of the Rings, so... Yeah, Tolkien's. Yeah, I remember 
having that described to me, I remember owning that copy of Fellowship of the Ring in the late 70s that that cover homages. So that's really cool. Okay, your four, Liz? Well, after, since I gushed about heroic characters and the themes for my last one, I'm going to kind of nitpick a little bit with this one. With the wizard class, one of the things that you can automatically do as a wizard is something called magical awareness. And it allows you to not only automatically be able to detect magic um, in an area if it exists. I, mean, I believe you have to concentrate That's at will, a little right? bit to do it. Um, yeah, it's like um, all wizards can cast the detect magic spell at will by simply concentrating for a single round. If the wizard spends an hour or more examining a magic item and makes a successful saving throw, they can identify the specific properties and abilities of a magic item. Now, I don't necessarily have a problem with wizards being able to automatically cast detect magic, you know, but I don't know, being able to just automatically identify a magical item at first level, I don't Well, it's care not automatic. Well, yeah, I mean, but, you know, even having a, a, a chance, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't have a problem with them being able to do that at higher levels because, you know, they've got some experience under their belt. They, you know, know more about how magic works, what it feels like. You know, I would say that they should have a decent chance of being able to suss out what a magic item does once they start, you know, hitting like fourth level and up. I, I just I feel eh, I feel near eh, about them being able to do that straight out of Hogwarts at first level, you know. So yeah. that that's Fair my that, that that's my that's my little nitpick your, there. Your cute little grump. My, my cute little grumpy grump. That's right. <laughs> Stop it, because that is adorable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm giving you a frowny face now. <laughs> okay, four, Jim. Yeah, my frowny face will take the paint off the wall, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, my number four <laughs> is either a good thing or a bad thing, depending upon your age. Um, for character classes, they uh, James put in what I call the D&D cartoon class system. So it's your Unearthed Arcana plus Player's Handbook class system. So you've got all the regular ones you're, you're expecting, but unusually for a retro clone, you got cavaliers and acrobats and barbarians. I'm surprised there wasn't a little My Little Pony the Unicorn pet you could have. But <laughs> so, so, so a little like we were discussing uh, around that uh, voicemail or email, it's, you know, a little almost second edition AD&D, late first edition coming into an OD&D rule set. Now, that that's your thing, Yay! Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry, uh, I, tr- I tried to contain my unbridled enthusiasm because it's not my thing. <laughs> I, and that'll go, actually go into my three, which is something of the class system. And yeah, I agree that they got a pile of classes. Uh, basically, any of the ones you can think of that were from Arcana and AD&D are here. I will say, when I first saw the Duelist, I thought, oh no, they took the Duelist from Dragon Magazine. Right. But when I looked at it, it's actually the Assassin class reskinned. 
Ah, I missed that. So, so it's it's really a lighter version of the assassin, which again, you know, since the hero's journey is trying to emphasize good behavior, that that makes sense. You wouldn't want to say, "And here's the assassin," you know. So, yeah, I uh, I like some of the things he did from it. He has options. It's defaults as race and class, but he has an option for race as class. Um, I agree with Liz about the detect magic, identify, etc. Although I do like how they do the wizards can get bonus spells at higher level, like the old cleric thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I like how when an acrobat gets name level, they get their own traveling carnival instead of a stronghold. <laughs> I'm not sure how the heck you would do an adventure for that, but it's it's great. And then there's other little changes, like barbarians can find secret doors really well. Huh? That's even weirder than elves, in my opinion. But well, they find them by clubbing the crap out of the wall with their club, and like, oh, secret door! <laughs> <laughs> they stomp so loud, hey, wait, the dust fell off that section of the wall differently. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's there's little changes, lest you think, oh, it's a Cavalier, I know exactly what they do. Or, there's like, nah, not exactly, I mean, the four core are pretty stock, but all the others have little variants, especially the Jester, but you would expect that, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's, I, I'll just say the class variants... And as a little subcategory, I really like how all the options are put in as labeled as house rule instead of option, which I think is even more a, you can use this or not. It's totally up to you. And you just that throughout the book for lots of things. But anyway, that's my three. Liz? Okay. Um, my next one. We're talking about uh, magical weapons and armor. Or how your ordinary weapon and armor and or armor can become magical over the course of a campaign. And this is how, this is something that he calls myth points. You and, rub them on a wizard every day for a year. <laughs> and this falls into the whole themes around which this game is built. As you are doing heroic deeds, you know, you have your weapon or your armor can slowly, I guess, draw in, you know, it will, it will start to imbue, you know, it gains a levels. force. Yeah, it imbues a force, you know, based on what deeds you are doing with this. Um, you know, if you say you have a magic sword or something, every time you make a nat 20 on a strike that weapon gains a myth point. And, you know, after it gets so many myth points, then it becomes a plus one weapon of some kind. Um, okay, but it doesn't start magic. It starts No, normal. no, 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 no. It, yeah, it starts as, you know, you just bought a normal longsword at oh, your okay. local armory or something. And over the course of your adventuring, as you are doing these good deeds with the weapon, you ha- it potentially that weapon will become something more 
than just an ordinary sword, just as you are becoming something more than just an ordinary man or woman. Mm, and, you know, you and your weapon or your armor start to grow in stature together as stories are told about you and, you know, things happen. And, you know, you are becoming a mythical figure in the fabric of the tales of your kingdom that you are in. So I think that was, that's a really, I think that's really cool. <laughs> I, I, I can't say it any more than that. I, I think that's a really cool idea. <laughs> I don't know, but there's part of me that doesn't like it. But if you look at myth, that makes pl perfect sense. I mean, you know, whether it's, Arthur or Roland or Siegfried, you know, it, as their adventures go on, their weapons become famous. Yeah, um, and so it's based on the wielder's actions. It's not like, you know, well, at such and such level, your sword automatically becomes a plus one. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, See, I would disallow that. What I would use the rule for is a player who suddenly develop some unreasoning hatred of lycanthropes and starts, you know, making it his PC career to kill them and names his sword Wolfsbane, then suddenly it might gain some pluses versus lycanthropes. When, mm -hmm. it's, when it's got, like, well, a role-playing component. Like I say, I don't know that I like it, but I, again, I'm thinking it may be just my grogness talking. You're supposed to find magic items. Uh... So well, you just judgment. you just know how open yeah, to player it, abuse it would be, Mike. I mean, you're mm. going to have your guys <laughs> asking you every session, three times a session, did I gain any pluses yet? Like when I tried to play Hackmaster and everybody's trying to use every single skill possible so that at <laughs> the end of the game they can get a roll to increase the... Yeah, maybe that's it. But anyway, okay. Yeah, but it's it's supposed to be based on, you know, feats of valor and, you know, just amazing things. Not, you know, just doing mundane stuff with the weapon. And yeah, you know, if a lot of what you did with that weapon, you know, involves killing a certain type of creature, you know, it would be like a bane, you know, like, you know, you know, plus one against lycanthropes, you know, something like that. So in real um, life, you'd end up with a sword that was like plus two or three versus tavern owners. Yeah, you know. <laughs> plus three versus jellies. <laughs> It's pudding pop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, I'll, I'll chew on it, personally. But Okay, your three, Jim. My three is, uh, you actually touched on just a moment ago, with all the little house rules sidebars that are throughout the book. Um, normally, those kind of little asides, especially if there's a lot of them, annoy me. But the content in these were so many little golden nuggets. Um that it suddenly changed my mind on on that thing, that very thing. I, I think they make it a very flexible system, and in a way, they almost teach a new DM. If a new DM should get his hands on these rules, it'll teach them how to house rule house rule D&D themselves, because they'll see how many variations. Like you know, how does poison work? You know, can you can I meditate and get something? All those little oh, yeah. tiny house rules he has throughout there. And, of course, the combat example with Osric the fighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I 
I've heard some people have mentioned, I don't know if that's because they were looking at an earlier version or something, that it doesn't really give any info for new gamers. I I disagree. That's not what I got from this at all. I mean, yeah, granted, there's not a huge section at the front going, what is a role-playing game? But I think instead, he's spruced it throughout the rules where it's appropriate rather than just a big chunk of text at the beginning. Yeah, and a lot of helpful commentary throughout the book. You know, how would you bring the heroes together? You know, here are some tips on designing adventures. You know, here's tips on developing a full campaign. You know, so there's a lot of stuff here for neophytes who, you know, might not be feeling confident about, you know, spinning something whole cloth. He gives ideas and suggestions on how you could go about doing that. Yeah. I, enough so that just reading those, I would play at his table anytime, and I'm pretty picky about who I play with. Okay. I bet I bet his house rule system he runs is awesome. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Alright, well, uh, then I guess my number two is going to be some things about combat. On the whole, he uses the standard combat tropes we all know about, armor class, hit points, blah, blah, blah. Um, though he does go give both ascending and descending, depending on how you want to use it. There are three combat innovations he has in there that bug me a little. Um, one thing, he has the stock, you know, you roll your initiative the fir- at the beginning of the game, and that's how it stays for the rest of the combat. I've never been a fun- fan of that. I will admit... It oh, you makes- hush your mouth. Make <laughs> I will admit it does make keeping track, you know, who goes when, where, a lot easier. But it just, I don't, I don't like it. It, it to me, it's, you know, it's basically saying once a combat starts, you can never steal the initiative of the combat away from anyone who's attacked you, and that's just wrong. That's what knocking people prone with a crit's for. <laughs> right. Because you now have an advantage on him because of the last turn you beat the snot out of him. So, but not well. But he ran, rolled higher than me first, so he will always go before me in every round. That doesn't make sense to me. But you know, that's a minor. Um, the other things he did. Apparently, his armor not only has armor class, but has a reduction value. To where not only does armor slash armor class make you harder to quote-unquote hit. And I say quote-unquote because most D&Ds, regardless of flavor, tend to say, you know, rolling to hit, you're not actually rolling to impact or touch the enemy. You're really seeing if you can get past his guard and do damage. But actually absorbing hit points of damage, I, I that to me feels like it kind of goes against the grain of the armor class system. So, at least for fantasy games. So, so yeah, I don't think I like the um, absorption of hit points and damage by armor. Um, he also allows, you know, binding of wounds. He kind of does a, a death's door rule, but it's not as great. You don't go to neg 10, probably, unless you have an awesome, unless you're 10th level. It's based on your level. I, I could probably live with that. But binding wounds gives you 1d6 minus 1 hit points back automatically. I mean, that's a cure light wounds there, people. Sound like that. Yeah, if I was playing a first level character, I'd like it, but I don't know. 
and these are minor. You know, you can forget all. You could drop all these out, and it would work just fine. But those are my gripes. So, other than that, how did you enjoy the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got a rep to maintain here. Okay, Liz, you're number two. Uh, well, I was going to talk about Death's Door as my number two. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I rather I rather like his take on it um, that you know instead of just being you know across the board you go to negative ten and then you're dead I like how he does the you're doing it based on your level if you're a second level character you can go to neg two if you're a fifth level character you can go to neg five if you're a first level character you can only go to neg four or to neg one <laughs> but but I think. I think that makes more sense, actually. Well, still it beats seems, classic zero, you're dead. Yeah, I mean, it gives you a little bit of wiggle room, but, you know, again, not as much if you are low level as you would get if you were higher level. Um, intuitively, this just seems to make more sense to me. I really liked that take on it. And he caps constitution adjustment bonus to hit point totals to third level. After third level, they don't add in anymore. Which is an interesting choice. Um, I kind of see maybe he's trying to keep the, you know, hit point creep in control. On the other hand, it's at most plus one or plus two, you know, so mm -hmm. it's not a huge amount. <laughs> As an aside, Tim asked me on the way back from Game Hole Con, so how'd you do? And I'm like, three TPKs in two games. He said, how'd you do that? Well, this is how what we're talking <laughs> about, because if the whole party dies and some rule brings them back, I still take the TPK credit. <laughs> <laughs> That's still a notch on your GM screen, damn it. Hey, won't argue me. So, you're number two, Jim. I think it's magic how we all separately picked combat-related number twos. Uh, mine, was, <laughs> mine was a very tiny component of the combat si or of the experience point system technically but it's combat related i love that he gave a little table in the experience point section for uh, guidelines to award non-combat experience points i thought that I was, like that that was awesome. I thought that was just pure genius i mean lots of systems say you can award xp for non-combat issues but he actually gives examples and suggested xp awards for them which i thought was cool and uh uh, back to my personal judging style, I need those kind of reminders. Like, you know, in, D in DCC and MCC, my players are constantly, especially con games, they're burning their luck like crazy. So when somebody does something spectacular, I like to remember to say, take a point of luck for that. And in, mm -hmm. in this game, that would be, okay, that was non-combat XP you just earned. Yeah. And even stuff around the table, rather than what your character does. You know, he's giving XP for encouraging other people on, around the table to contribute more. Right, right. Or getting, every, getting everyone to laugh. Yeah, yeah there's, yeah. there's one for make the whole table laugh, which I will totally give you a luck point for. Although, usually when I do that, I get XP penalties. It's because you ask for them. Uh, you've, oh, well. you've forgotten the Jim you Ward rule. You get yeah, yeah. Okay. Remember the Jim Ward rule: never be funnier than the DM. Oh, maybe that's it. That's what's getting me in trouble. See, Mike wants to lose XP. You know, he gripes about it on the show, but he gets upset if Chase instead awards him XP for being snarky at the table. I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe it's particular sure. to the to the DM because I love Mike Snark. I told you, you just earned a hundred XP bonus points, Mike. Woo! 
Well, I guess, it, yeah, it is the DM, because I want Chase to kind of glare at me. I mean, why do you think I go on about proficiencies? Other than I hate him, you know. But <laughs> yeah. Other than that. So, non-combat experience point table. Yay! Cool. Alrighty, my number one. There is a small section in the back of the monsters before it gets to Wandering Monsters table, after it's described the monsters, where he... He, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically comes across and says, monster rules of their power, hit points, whatever, are not the PC rules. In fact, there are no rules. You make it however you want to as a DM. Of course, you then have to take the consequences if your players stop not having fun because of them. But it just... It irritates me whenever people try to quantify the building of monsters. It just, you know, to me, in the end, what you're doing is taking away DM imagination, really. You'll never be able to codify it to be completely balanced, whatever that even means. So I give him firm two thumbs up for that, for calling it like it is. So, Liz? Mm -hmm. Following up on on your monsters thing, um, I really liked, um, you know, creatures don't have any hard and fast alignments. They can be either friend or foe, depending on the DM's whim or the actions of the PCs. Oh, nice. Crap, I didn't notice that. Nice. I was yeah. looking at the monsters. Now it just, yeah, yeah. they don't have any alignments. Yeah. There, there's, there are no alignments. Um, I always like it when, they, when that happens in a game set. Um, because, um, you know, you, well... I mean, yeah, there's going to be guidelines, but you never entirely know 100% what to expect if there is no hard and fast alignment for a monster. It's like, yes, 90% of the time, if you run into orcs, they are probably going to be evil, but there's always that chance. But how you else can run you into commit... one that's gotten how pretty else okay. Do you... Yeah, but how else do you commit genocide on a goblin village? <laughs> well, you still can do that. Um, but it might be a bad thing. This is the hero's <laughs> journey. The hero's journey. Not the person who commits genocide on an entire goblin village's journey. Well, they were evil. I had to. So what's my EP, man? Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> okay. So, so there you go. I, I, really, I really like it when a game system you know, just throws out alignments for the monsters. And I do think it also ties in with, you know, the three-point alignment and basically saying, you know, most of your player characters are going to be considered neutral because it's the forces of law and chaos rather than being good slash evil. I mean, you can be a good person, but you have not dedicated yourself to the forces of law, you know, etc. So, okay. All right, Jim. What? Oh, sorry. I forgot I was on the show for a second there. I was just kicked back listening to it like I'm listening to a podcast. (laughs) Which? Wow, that DM Liz makes some excellent points. Well, yeah, you know, before I was on the show, I listened to you guys. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, I can't believe I got to my number one and nobody snatched it up from under me. My number one, prepare to put on your shocked face, is the entirety of the magic system. I love, love, love the... uh, I like different approaches. So, I mean, I like 
first edition AD&D magic system where it's like, you know, physics equations and you know exactly what's going to happen. I love DCC system where it's wild and untamed and you have no idea what's going to happen to your role. But this is a really nice spin on the OD&D magic system. I mean, the uh, it's a lot of what you would expect, obviously, but the, I love those little simple, tight, you know, one small paragraph spell descriptions where it's a very simplified spell description like OD&D style. It's abstracted somewhat into game mechanics without getting into all the Faldera and Fiddle-D-D and just uh, some of the little rule mechanic changes uh, and some things that weren't changed. Magic Missile, I'm sorry, uh, Arcane Dart automatically hits. Always. Yay. Mm-hmm. There's, your, there's, your, there's your survival mm-hmm. tool at first level wizard. But... Uh, I noticed that the as as it's written the casting time for spells is universal. The the spell cast it takes as long to cast a spell as the spellcaster lands in the initiative order with his initiative roll because the spell he describes it as the spell casting starts at the beginning of the round and then the spell is cast when it becomes the wizard or cleric's initiative. Universal across the board all spells and I just thought that was really nice. Uh, change from everything I've ever read or used to. Maybe there's another system out there that does it that way that I don't know about, but uh, I'm like, I, I like the war gaminess of that. So that's okay. even almost a callback to Chainmail. Um, yeah. And the saving throws versus obviously against spells but against other things are also universal uh, in that you're, there's only one saving throw for everything. Like that show we had a few episodes back I've never read a system where you got one saving throw against everything, and it's based on a uh, your class. There's a chart. Whatever class you are, whatever level you are, you look it up. That's your saving throw, which, I, which obviously gets better by level. And <laughs> I'd actually like to play that. I mean, I was intrigued. I'd like to play that and try it out and see how it works. Yeah, I'd try it out. I'd still buy it, but again, <laughs> that may be my grogginess. So... Yeah. So, yeah. Well, okay. I, I deliberately kept away from, you know, the magic stuff as much as I could because I figured you would probably want to touch on that at least once, Jim. I felt a little bad about talking about the wizard bit because, like, well, I might be, I might be dragging one of his in over, but it's like, well, I got to talk about this one, but I'll, I'll leave the rest of the magic alone and and leave that to to Jim to to, to cover. So oh, well, that's because you're a sweetheart. I, 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 I I tried not to step on other people's toes with my choices. Unlike Mike. Yes, Mike. <laughs> I th- I think this is the first top five we've ever done where nobody stole anybody's top five. We yeah, got, pretty did, much. Didn't we just get through the whole thing? Yeah, we're done. Yeah, I mean, Mike mentioned my death door right before mine, but... But it wasn't you know, really part of it. It was just yeah, a variant. He yeah, he just sort of tacked that on. Oh, yeah, and that too. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, let's, speaking of combat, let's talk about monsters in Random Encounters. How many people want to kick some ass? There are, there are seven ogres surrounding you. How could they surround us? I had Morton Titan's magical watchdog cat. No, you didn't. A satanic fungus rises from the forest floor and says, You're playing D&D. You're playing D&D. This whole apartment is playing D&D. Random Encounters. Okay, random encounters. We each chose a monster from the hero's journey and compared it to its OD&D equivalent. 
and we will start with Jim. <laughs> it was finally my turn. Um, I picked the Iron Golem, <laughs> but uh, I uh, unfortunately had to sell my white box and couldn't find my home, so I'm I'm comparing it to uh, the entry in the ADD Monster Manual First Edition, which is basically still ODD anyway. So, uh, Iron Golem in the Hero's Journey, weak sauce compared to the AD&D, you know, killing machine. It's it's the same abilities and stats, but a much um, higher or lower armor class, depending on whether you do ascending or descending, and uh, James Spawn has provided a table that flips it back and forth for you. Uh, so, uh, easier to hit, still the same invulnerabilities, but not as many hit points. So, it'll still poison glass poison cloud you right in your face and that will be save versus die because you only got that one saving throw i was just talking about yeah but uh not uh, you know not the end of the world encounter it is in uh od and ad and i forget does the iron golem have the slow on opponents or is that the stone golem uh, iron golems are the ones where uh, they're only affected by lightning spells and fire-based spells, and the fire-based spe- spells heal them. Gives them, yeah, yeah, gives them hit points. Okay, I, and, I, and I partly picked that because that's what happened this weekend at GameOcon when I threw iron golems at a bunch of MCC players who thought they were robots and decided to talk to them. Well, they are robots, kind of. Well, I'm an evil judge. <laughs> okay, well. I chose the Mind Flayer, although that's Strategic Review technically, or the Brain Lord, as it's called in Hero's Journey. Uh, disguised or described as having the head of an octopus, but has scaly fish-like skin instead of the the lavender we all know and love. Um, the only things uh, stood out: uh, the original Mind Flayer was an AC five. The Brain Lord is AC8, so it's a little easier to hit. Um, however, you know, the armor, he's got like a two reduction value too, so I'm not really sure that might very well work out to virtually the same in play. Um, eight plus three hit dice in strategic review, seven in Hero's Journey, so pretty close. Uh, don't really have the magic resistance system so that doesn't really compare they don't say that the brain lords eat brains i guess you could just make that up on the fly if you want um their mind blasts do just a set number of hit points and attribute damage rather than that big ass table they had in strategic review for the results you know they kind of evolved into sonic attack upon defenseless psionic and AD&D. Brain thrust and all that crap. Yeah, all that stuff. No, it's just I I like his his better. It's very simple. Just boom, 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 and they can charm monsters, charm persons. So you know to get their mindless thralls. So on the whole, you know, it's it's a little different, but not so much different that you can't say, well, it's just a modified version of the monster. You know, it's pretty much just as tough to. Uh, fight in combat. I mean, it doesn't have the one to four rounds, remove your brain and eat it, but generally that only works if you're in melee and he's got a hold of you, so. Alright, Liz? I'm going to bet Liz's uh, monster she picked is on page 139. You could be right. You could <laughs> be right. Um, since I'm sure everyone's waiting for it, I'm going to talk about the kobold. <laughs> Score! 
Yes. There's there's really not an awful lot of difference between the Holmes basic version of the Cobalt and what James Spahn has here. Um, you know, the description is even more or less the same. Um, in Hero's Journey, Cobalts are subterranean, vaguely goblin-like humanoids. In Holmes Basic, they were described as evil dwarf-like creatures, behaving much like goblins, but less powerful. Ah. So you, you have more or less the same description. Um, again, like the Holmes one, it's very brief description. It doesn't go into an awful lot of detail like some of the other monsters. Um, but, you know, they've got the same negative one to hit, fighting above ground, um, tend to... So, what, what are the differences? Um, he does not mention that they have infravision, the way that it is specifically stated in Holmes. just says they're negative one to hit above ground fighting. Um, I so was for sure don't that... Have I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just—I was for sure that the end of that sentence was going to be they don't specifically mention they have puppy faces. Yeah, they well, they don't do that either. Um, but then they don't do that in Holmes. So you know, yep. for the most part, he's kind of on track with you know with the Holmes basic Cobalt. Okay. Um, does not talk about infravision, and does not mention you know the chieftain fights like a knoll. Um, it doesn't say anything special about how a cobalt chieftain would fight. Okay. Um, also does not talk about pluses to saving throws. Um, so they they seem a, t- a tiny bit watered down from Holmes' basic cobalts, but okay. only a tiny bit. All right. Hey, Mike, can I recant on mine a little? Mm. You reminded no. I, I, you just, well, Mike, you reminded me, I forgot about reduction values, that Iron Golem's got a reduction value of eight, so apparently he's not easier to hit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing, that that reduction value can throw the combat numbers, potentially, so it's hard to just kind of judge off a read. You know, maybe they're weaker, but maybe not, you know, if they're basically ignoring the first couple of hit points, or in this case, the first eight hit points, you know, it's like, Wow. Maybe there's a method to James Bond's madness. Hmm. Maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a good sampling of monsters. Now on to products. In new Dungeons and Dragons, power is won by finding new ways to battle. I can feel the darkness inside me. And being completely dragon flapping awesome. <laughs> Set comes with spellbook, ritual rites, playboard. Sacrificial dagger and dice, dice, dice. TSR Hobbies, Dungeons and Dragons game, products of your imagination. Poyi. Now feel free, everyone, to talk about <laughs> to talk as graphics designers. Ha ha! Can we just sort of cut and paste what we said earlier and just kind of <laughs> drop that in here? I feel like I'm going to be repeating myself for the most part. It's like, this is so awesome. It's full color on the inside. (laughs) I mean, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the single best laid out OSR product I've had in my hands to look at and judge this way. I mean, just not, not just, you know, professional, usually professionalism is the goal for a lot of OSR products, not just professional, but award-winning superior professional layout. 
I mean, it's just Ooh. gorgeous. You want to read this when you open it up. Not to get all Jim Pinto about it. <laughs> Regarding colors, don't they, like, put those house rule sections into, like, blue boxes or something? Uh, it's sort of a blue box. It's kind of a... It's a, it, nah. it's a gradient. You know, the left-hand side of the box starts out with a very pale blue... And then it fades to white as it goes across the box. Ah, okay. Um, it's a very nice effect, and it makes it doesn't, you know, hurt your readability as much or look even as clunky looking as a solid blue box would look. And it, okay. it's, it may be my age and nostalgia and member berries, but uh, I love the little every other line on a table is gray background and then his color mm-hmm. layout it's a very very pale uh not bright yellow which is just beautiful almost like a yellowish gray i love that and you know art he got larry elmore to do art in this book <laughs> and uh not That's just sad. not just larry elmore but you know some other really fine uh, artists working in the field including one that's doing illustrations for me in mcc william mcosland whose stuff i love you know I, I can't read. I don't want to read the whole list and take up the time. But you know, right? No booger right. art. Booger art free. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one difference from original DND. I, I have a nitpick, but you you go. You have something. Um, no, I was just going to move us into dragons unless there was something else to talk about. There was, but no, obviously there is. So go ahead. I've got a nit. There's no index in the back. Boo da, and da, da, da. shame on you. <laughs> We all need index. Victorious doesn't have an index. But, you fiend! Oh well. Yeah, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't get page numbers put in there <laughs> to some of the references. <laughs> Can you imagine what would have happened with an index? <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let's get to some number dragons then. Liz? Oh, gosh. I'm I'm going to have to give this five dragons. I'm going to give this the full five dragons. I love fangirl. this book. I am a fangirl. <laughs> this is awesome. I would leap at the chance to to play in the hero's journey. Okay, Jim. I'm going to give it a solid one. Oh wait! <laughs> wow! No no no! I, I got ascending and descending mixed up again. Five. Oh, it's totally a five. Thank you, Mikey Mason. <laughs> no, no, no. Five, five solid dragons. I mean, this, wow. should, this should be a copy. This should be on everybody's shelf. Well, I shall return to my crown of bonus. I give it a four out of five. It's some really good stuff. It's all in one book. I'd play it. There's just enough different though even though some of it's optional some of it is at least intended to be part of the game that just makes me a little hinky i i don't know how, how that i'd like it that much so well a force I, I, a four is still yeah. really high from you and it's it's not like you aren't supporting that oh, yeah, with... well over average but you know yeah i mean that's and part of that is it was fun to read. I mean, sometimes I don't like reading rule book. You know, nobody likes to read a rule book cover to cover. Um, I wrote my Victorious, and I don't like reading it cover to cover. But this was fun to read. I mean, you know, obviously for the spells and stuff, that can get a little... Yeah, you know, But the actual rules talk and everything, it's fun to read. So, yeah, I think it's great. So that's 14... 4.666. 
666. Well, Congrats. I, 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 I liked rounding it off at three sixes. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's really all you need. And so we come to that dirt road heading into the twilight of Bill Bixby, Bixby land. That we're wandering down, me with my walker. <laughs> and how are we heading down the road? Let's. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am I am running down the road because I have an animated weapon chasing me, trying to kill me. And that was something I didn't get to talk about in the book, but animated weapon is a monster, and I think that is awesome. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Jim? I am murder hoboing my way right down the highway. <laughs> But I'm on the hero's journey, but I'm still collecting some XP because I'm making the whole table laugh when I do it. Ah. Well, I'm headed down the road in my walker after having committed genocide at a, <laughs> at a goblin village. And unlike most other role-playing games, I feel a bit ambivalent about it. Hmm. And on that note, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you at the big 130. Bye-bye. See ya. Briark. And we're out ski. <laughs> you are so funny, Mike. What? I can just I, I can tell when you're done. When you're when you're trying to shove us down the down the road. <laughs> go, 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 go! <laughs> of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Saberdye theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. James M. Spawn's The Hero's Journey is available as both a pay-what-you-want PDF or a luxurious hardback from lulu.com. Come on, you know you want the hardback. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. More than 20 is like a 68 Impala.